0: Hello. Greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. We've been talking about a group of people who are almost invisible and yet they prove of great importance and support for Jesus in his ministry. We hear them mentioned occasionally in the gospel and sometimes we hear more about them than we do about some of the lesser apostles. In so many ways these people are hiding in plain sight they're present but they're often not mentioned and they're therefore often neglected unfortunately in our study preaching and teaching and they're the women who followed Jesus some of these women followed Jesus wherever he went they were most likely present at all points during his ministry and many even according to Luke 8 and verse 2 financially supported his works the women are the ones who prepared meals and served food they watched the Lord Jesus suffer and die on the cross And they saw him buried, and they had come back to finish anointing his body on the first day of the week. Many of these women would remain with the disciples after Jesus' resurrection, devoted to prayer in Acts 1 and verse 14. And so we've been exploring what we can know about some of Jesus' female followers. And today, let's consider Mary, the mother of Jesus. What do we learn about Mary from Scripture? How have later traditions almost entirely changed the way people look at Mary? And what encouragement can we gain from what scripture reveals about Mary? We're introduced to Mary in Matthew 1, 18 through chapter 2 and verse 23, and in Luke 1, 26 through chapter 2 and verse 52. Now Matthew's portrayal of the birth narrative of Jesus is told in Joseph's perspective, that his betrothed Mary was found with child. He's a good man, so he's going to put her away quietly, as opposed to demanding a death sentence for adultery. The angel Gabriel visits him, tells him that the child is of the Holy Spirit. He takes her in. She gives birth in Bethlehem. Wise men bring gifts, and they leave for Egypt and eventually end up in Nazareth. But in Luke's version, we hear the story from Mary's perspective. And so really it's in Luke's version that we get some insight about who Mary is. Mary is Hebrew Aramaic Miriam, uh, related to the word for the name of Moses' sister. She's a virgin of Nazareth. She's betrothed to Joseph. She's a relative of Elizabeth, who's the wife of Zechariah the priest who would be giving birth to John the Baptist very shortly in this story. In Luke 1 and verse 26, we're told that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This event is called often the Annunciation. And this is the Annunciation. There's the Announcement Greetings' favorite one. Mary's trying to figure out what that meant. Gabriel reassures her that all is well and that, in fact, uh, she will conceive and call her name, child's name Jesus, Yeshua. Yahweh saves. He'll be great, son of God most high, and will see the kingdom of David. And she wonders how this is possible, since she's a virgin, as we heard. But Gabriel assures that it will be the spirit who comes upon her, and the child will be God's son. And she consents this wonderful line, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word, that she submits. Now, Mary will visit Elizabeth in verses 39 through 45. And Elizabeth declares Mary to be blessed among women, the mother of the Lord. And because of this mayor will break out in the psalmic praise, the Magnificat. With good things, and the rich he has sent away empty, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So, in general, this psalm is a psalm of praise to God, who elevates the lowly and poor while casting down the lowly and powerful. And from this Mary goes on to see how God has elevated Israel, according to the promises of Abraham, through what he is doing through her. And so in Luke 2, 1-7, Joseph and Mary will travel to Bethlehem for the census, and that's where Mary gives birth. The shepherds are told by the angels of the birth of Christ the Savior. In verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the shepherds go and see what this is about. They find um, Mary and Joseph and the child. They made known in verse 17 the things that they had heard from the angel. And Mary, in verse 19, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Later on, they will go to Jerusalem to dedicate Jesus in the temple, Luke 2, 21-24. They bring turtle doves, which is the uh, least expensive of the offerings, and that indicates their relative poverty. These are not very rich people. Simeon had been told that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he comes to the temple that day. In verse 28 He takes up Jesus in his arms, blesses God, and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a life for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother, Mary, marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother behold this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also and so thoughts from many hearts may be revealed so Simeon here speaks of the glory that God was going to accomplish for himself through Jesus that salvation would come, even a light to the Gentiles, that he would be a cause of rising and falling in many among Israel, or was opposed, and a sword would pierce through Mary's spirit as well. Twelve years later, in Luke chapter 2, when the family had gone down to gone up in the parlance, since you're traveling higher at altitude to Jerusalem, for the Passover, uh, when they went down again back to Nazareth, he was not with the with the family in the caravan. Instead, he was in the temple, hearing and asking questions. Everyone was marveling at his knowledge. And when uh, they found him there, in verse 48, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress." And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So, we get this interesting portrayal here uh, of Mary so far. We see many things about her, that she is uh, betrothed to to Joseph. We see that she is willing to consent to have the Christ child, which is more than we might imagine for a lot of people. Uh, The shame of of an unwed pregnancy. Uh, uh, Joseph thinking about uh, divorcing her versus executing her in Matthew chapter 1 is indicative of the kind of shame that was involved. Uh, She didn't fully understand everything. She understood the prophecy. She knew what God had promised Israel. And so she knew there was going to be this great salvation delivered. But the exact way things were going about and the very things being told her didn't make entire sense. But she remembered them. She kept them in mind as the events would continue on. Now, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 27, it says that Joseph kept Mary virgin until Jesus had been born. And so, after Jesus had been born, Joseph knew his wife Mary, and she begat other sons and daughters. We know the names of some of the sons: are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, who become Jude and Matthew. 56 In parallel passages, we're not told the names of his sisters. The next time we see Mary in the narrative is in John chapter two, when uh, Jesus is now full-grown and has been baptized. And there's a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was invited, and also his disciples came with. And the wine ran out. And the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And then we see that there's these water jars. Jesus tells them to filled them with water to pull, uh, draw some out and give it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast is astonished, says to the feast, uh, the bridegroom saying, hey, everybody puts out the best wine first and then worse wine later, you've saved the best for last. But uh, his disciples knew what had happened. And we're told in verse 12, after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. We then will see Mary will meet again when she is with her sons and wants to speak with Jesus in Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, this is the opportunity where Jesus... I was told that his his mother and brothers were outside, and he said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Not necessarily attempting to completely disregard his familial connections, but to emphasize the spiritual family connections of those who do the will of God. Now, in Mark chapter 3, in verse 21, we're perhaps given some insight about what's going on here. Uh, And we read in that verse that uh, when his family heard about the things going on, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And in Mark's version, it's then only a few verses later that it's his mother and brothers are outside, that his mother has come with his brothers. They're trying to stage an intervention. They think he's gone crazy with the things that he's doing and so we need to keep in mind what we read in john seven one through ten that his own brothers did not believe in him at this moment they did not accept his claims and so we can see uh some of the doubts that might creep in some of the wondering about how this is all going to take place now the next time that we meet mary again is at the foot of the cross in john chapter 19. Uh, only in John 19, John 19 is it clear that Mary, his mother, is actually watching the crucifixion. That's not something that you get out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John 19, and in verse 25, we're told that standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home she's even listed uh, uh, by the way we should say even though she's not explicitly mentioned in matthew mark and luke um space is made for her because they don't presume to list everybody who has come that's uh, very important but again you would automatically conclude just from matthew mark and luke alone that mary the mother of jesus was there but she's definitely here in the narrative because jesus sees her and the disciple whom he loves who is most likely john and he asks each of them to look at each other as mother and son, which is in a way Jesus is saying that John will provide and for and take care of his mother after his death. That John indicates uh, that he then took her into his own home and cared for her. Now, since Mary went back to Capernaum with Jesus in John 2.11, and he's making provision for her here in John 19, we can conclude fairly safely that Joseph has died in the meantime, sometime between his 12th, birthday, his 12th year and here in what is probably his 34th, 35th year. And so Jesus has to now provide for his family's eldest son, and now he's expecting John to provide for Mary for as long as she lives. Now, as one of the women watching the proceedings, Mary might well have watched as Joseph and Nicodemus prepared the body and buried it in Matthew 27, 57-61, and related passages. She also might well have been one of the women going out to the tomb early in the morning of the first day of the week in Matthew 28, Mark 16, and Luke chapter 23, 24, excuse me. But it is worth mentioning that Mary's never explicitly mentioned in that company. And only Luke among the gospel authors would give sufficient space to merit the claim. Others are very specific with the women. Uh, Luke opens it up a little bit more. The last time we see Mary mentioned explicitly in Scripture is in Acts 1 and verse 14. Where we're told that all these, the 12 disciples at that point, actually 11, were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So, um... They're praying up in the upper room between Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost. His brothers are also mentioned, that they have come to believe in him. Now, in First Corinthians 15, Paul will say that Jesus appeared to James in the resurrection. We see that Mary is present in the upper room of the apostles throughout that time, which would especially makes sense if indeed John is taking care of her. So we would imagine, and we have good reason to believe, that Jesus would have appeared to his mother in the resurrection as well. But it's worth mentioning, again, that nothing is explicitly revealed about that. Uh, that's a, that is a conclusion we're, d- d- we're coming to based on all the evidence, but there's nothing explicitly in Scripture to say that. And that's all that's revealed about Mary, the mother of Jesus in Scripture. Now, there are some who say that the elect lady of 2 John 1.1 is Mary, but in the end of that book, in Second John 1.13, uh, saying the elect lady where he is greets them, it's probably the church in mind. In Revelation chapter 12, a woman is seen uh, with child, and she's described. The woman gives birth to the Christ child. Now, while Mary did give birth to Jesus Christ, and so, sure, that's the source domain for this image here in Revelation. In Revelation, images mean what they mean. And so, while there's a woman there, that woman represents the people of God, Israel leading to the Christians, and is not explicitly Mary. So that's how Mary is portrayed in Scripture, a faithful Jewish woman of the Second Temple period who trusts in God, doesn't always understand what's going on around her son, but she always knows what had been said about him, and she ultimately proves to be one of his disciples and followers. There are some traditions out there who claim that Mary lived about 11 years after Jesus' death. That means she would have died in around 41, while John would still have been in Jerusalem, from the evidence we see in Acts 8.1, 2 and 4 in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Now, the apocryphal traditions and understanding of cultural context would indicate that Mary would have been around 12, no more than 14 at the time of the Annunciation when Gabriel came to her. So if Jesus is born between 5 and 4 of B.C., I know it seems kind of strange, but uh, they, they, they didn't exactly have that right when they calculated it. So Mary herself would have been born around 19 to 16 B.C., Now, if she lives to 41 of this era, she would have been around 57 to 61 years old, which is a very full life. Now, other traditions try to put her in Ephesus uh, with John. And that's a little bit more difficult to entertain because, based on all the evidence in Acts, it's really hard to put John in Ephesus before 60. There's no church there until... uh, Paul works there in Ephesus between around 55 to 57. And so it's possible that Mary would have lived into her 80s, uh, but the 41 tradition is much more likely. In later traditions, as, as you're probably well aware, Mary is elevated to an almost superhuman condition. She's the Virgin Mary. This is a tendency already seen in what's called the Proto-Evangelium of James, the Infancy Gospel or Early Gospel of James, which is likely written somewhere around 140 so within about 50 years of the end of the apostles it's a very popular story and it becomes the basis for later devotion to mary in the story uh mary's parents are named joachim and anna and they're righteous israelites who are barren till old age that when Aunt anna gave birth to mary she was kept as undefiled and dwelt in the temple until 12. she was then given to joseph for a wife joseph was selected as a widower who had previous children Uh, Salome is Mary's midwife, the Salome who would be the mother of John and James. She doesn't accept the claim that Mary is still a virgin after she gave birth to Jesus. She explores uh, the air with her hand, and it burns as if on fire. And when she says she believes in Mary's virginity, it, it is healed And this is devotion to the person of Mary not long after the apostolic period. It's the beginning of the claims of Mary's perpetual virginity. It exalts Mary's heritage and it tries to explain away Jesus' brothers and sisters as the older children having come from a previous marriage of Joseph. And so let's consider some of the main... Now, we, can't, we could spend hours talking about all the various traditions about Mary, how they came about, um, what justified them in the beginning, and what they've turned into. But let's just point out some of the main highlights of, of how people look at Mary today. Uh, one of the important ideas about Mary in later tradition is the idea that she was perpetually a virgin, something we see already starting to be established in the Protoevangelium of James. It's important to note that it is an unsettled question at the end of the 2nd century. Irenaeus of Lyon affirmed it in the 180s that she was a perpetual virgin, but Tertullian, uh, 20 years later over North Africa, did not. Now, in the 3rd and 4th standing, this idea gains standing, and it's bolstered by the presumption from John 19 that since Jesus gives care of his mother over to John... That uh, none of the other children, uh, that, that the other children, could not provide for her, and therefore Mary didn't have any other children to provide for her. Now, the idea of, Jesus, of Mary's perpetual virginity, excuse me, becomes settled doctrine in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy by the Second Council of Constantinople in 553, and it'll be held throughout. On top of the idea of perpetual virginity, we have the idea of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Now, as the doctrine of original sin develops over the late 2nd, really early 3rd century, uh, various contrivances were brought into being to explain how Jesus could have been born, but not in any way have the taint of original sin. And so the virginal conception of Jesus was one argument. But by the 5th century, some began to suggest that Mary herself also was immaculately conceived and therefore remained sinless herself. And this will become an 1854 official Roman Catholic doctrine in Pope Pius IX and Ephesus Deus that God prevented Mary from incurring original sin on account of the foreseen merits of Jesus Christ, quote-unquote. As time continued on there in the 3rd through 5th centuries, there became a lot of theological and Christological controversies about the nature of God and the nature of Jesus. And so many, in order to really exalt uh, both Jesus and Mary, started calling Mary the Theotokos, which in Greek means God-bearer. Now, Nestorius, who was a bishop of Antioch, was at time, was uncomfortable with it, very famously. He preferred just Christotokos, the Christ-bearer. This would eventually lead to the Nestorian and Monophysite Christological controversy that would consume much of the 5th century. In the Council of Ephesus in 431, Mary was proclaimed the Theotokos, and this title remains important of Mary in Eastern Orthodoxy to this day. Now, as we said earlier, there are some traditions that spoke of Mary's death. But by the fifth century, there are some who speculate that Mary never actually died, but was bodily assumed to heaven, somewhat like Enoch or Elijah. And in 1950, the Roman Catholic Church dogmatically accepted that idea in Pope Pius XIII's *Munificentissimus Mufent, Deus*. *Munificentissimus Mufent, Deus*. You start adding endings in Latin makes it much more difficult to say. And then, of course, there's the idea, based on many of these traditions, and especially Roman Catholicism, to a lesser degree in Eastern Orthodoxy, that the Blessed Virgin Mary is able to intercede in prayer for believers and serves as a type of mediatrix. She's reckoned as the mother of the church, and prayers and devotion to her are considered especially effective. She is even seen by some as the Queen of Heaven, despite the pagan heritage of that idea. And so Mary is highly venerated by a lot who see her as a means by which that she would appeal to Jesus effectively to turn her into that mediatrix, the woman that you're using to try to get to Jesus. And a lot of the devotion to Mary is given in terms of believed appearances of the virgin to people. For instance, the... Uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe. In 1531, Juan Diego claimed that the Virgin appeared to him at Guadalupe outside of Mexico City. His account of her appearance has become one of Mexico's most prominent symbols of devotion. And uh, to this day, you see pictures of Our Lady of Guadalupe uh, almost everywhere. There's also Our Lady of Lourdes. In 1858, a, f- a 14-year-old girl claimed that a lady spoke to her at a cave near Lourdes in France, and she claimed to be the Immaculate Conception. Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception is still revered there, and many travel on pilgrimage and claim that they've been healed because of it. There's also Our Lady of Fatima. In 1916, children in Portugal claimed to see the Virgin Mary, heard prophecies from her, and also at that place also remains a place of pilgrimage and devotion to Mary and her Immaculate Heart. And so these are the progressions of traditions that have very much distorted the biblical picture of Mary. So what are we to make of her, based on all of these things? Well, we must clear away the centuries of accretions of traditions to get back to a reasonably understandable Jewish girl of the Second Temple period. And realize how this has gone down. Emphasis on chastity and purity in the second century had led many to emphasize Mary's virginity. A desire to elevate her standing led to these fanciful stories about her parents and origin. And the Proto-Evangelium of James is hard to sustain because it looks more like a story of Roman Vestal Virgins than anything resembling what would have happened with uh, Jewish people in the temple, especially if Mary is of the family of David and not the family of Levi. Influential early Christians like Irenaeus really greenlighted Marian devotion and veneration, although it could be argued that even they did not see how far it would be taken and would not have accepted it. None of this stuff... Uh can be found in or justified by the New Testament. Instead, they all reflect Greco-Roman world and its ideas, a desire to venerate the sacred feminine, and Mary being elevated in terms of the theological disputes and developing religious practices uh, of the middle of the first millennium. It looks very little, to nothing at all, like what you'd expect from Second Temple Judaism. So, for instance, from the text, there's no basis to assume that Joseph is an older man the previous family in Matthew 127 Matthew uh, kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus and that presumes that afterward she no longer was kept as a virgin James and the others are reckoned in the text as brothers of the Lord and this connection is emphasized we saw that in Matthew 13:55. Paul will point out that he spoke with James the Lord's brother and, and, and called him that in Galatians 119 there are a lot of attempts to argue that they're his cousins or some other relation. Those are ideas that strain credulity. The Greek has words for those. But the apostles spoke of them as an Adelphoi, which is the word for brothers. If they were Joseph's children from a previous marriage, we would not expect any link of family to be broadcast so strongly. It would be an embarrassment to the situation. There is no reason to grant credibility to most of these traditions. Scripture reveals nothing about them, and many of them run counter to what would be expected for a Jewish girl of the Second Temple period, and things actually said in Scripture. And so having set aside all of those traditions, who is Mary, the mother of Jesus? When we look in the Gospel accounts, especially in the first couple chapters of Luke, we see that Mary is a peasant girl of Nazareth, related somehow to Elizabeth. She's aware of the prophecies of the one who would come from the root of Jesse, the branch of David. She consents in faith and proves willing to bear the shame of being an unwed, pregnant woman in an age where that was scandalous and shameful, and it would lead to stoning or constant shame. In the spirit, she perceives how God's selection of her is a demonstration of how he is lifting up the lowly and bringing down the mighty, and how he's bringing salvation to Israel. She sees astonishing things that she doesn't really fully understand, but she keeps them in remembrance in her heart. She is aware of Jesus' power, but it's an open question if she understands his mission at first. We saw in John 12 that she is fully confident in Jesus' abilities and kind of, in a a very playful sense, goads him into turning the water into wine. But in Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 8, if indeed Mark 3:21 explains the purpose of the mission, uh, Mary has come to stage intervention because they are afraid that Jesus has gone off the rails. Now, would it be that surprising for Mary to have believed that her son would have been the Christ and Messiah that Israel had been expecting, the one who would defeat the Romans and reestablish the Davidic kingdom? And she's most likely a widow by the time of Jesus' ministry. She watched him die. She likely saw him in the resurrection. She was numbered among his disciples, and ultimately John, uh, the apostle, would provide for her. Now, while Marian devotion has been taken to an extreme in Roman Catholicism, we shouldn't go so far the other way as to deny what is said in Luke 1:42 and 48, that Mary is in fact blessed. She's a faithful servant of God, and all that demanded. She was not ignorant of what it meant to bear the Christ child. Everyone would think she was guilty of adultery, and questions would haunt Jesus' origins afterward. As a 12-year-old, she proved willing to fully entrust herself to God's purposes, to bear the shame of the stigma of unwed pregnancy, to bear the Christ child. said, we could see that she saw in the Spirit how God was elevating what is lowly, and throughout the rest of her life she could make sense of what God was doing in Jesus in this way. But Mary's also human. It's important to remember. She's been caricatured as superhuman. You look at those pictures of her. All the icons. All the pictures. She's this stoic state. Uh, picture of chastity, virginity, holiness. Superworldly. But in scripture, she's human. She's full of hope at the prospect of what her child would do. She didn't fully understand at times. She may even have doubted at moments. And can we even imagine her agony? She watched her son die. Indeed, as Simeon said, a a sword that would pierce your own soul also. And yet, in the end, Mary is remarkable for how unremarkable she is. She's never elevated to the degree that Catholicism has done. But beyond her willingness to bear the Christ child, she's not made anything of to any profound level. It's not a way to try to denigrate Mary as much as just normalize her. She's an ordinary Galilean Jewish woman of the Second Temple period, and she was called upon to participate in extraordinary events and lived in simple faith. And in the end, Mary is in the midst of the disciples. She is a follower of her son in John 19:25 and27 and Acts 1:14. It's a testament to her humility and willingness to serve her own offspring as Lord. And we have every reason to believe that she remained among the faithful brethren as long as she lived, and that she cherished the hope of resurrection in her son. And so in these ways, Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the New Testament, provides great example of faith to encourage all believers, and that she is indeed blessed. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a faithful servant of God Most High, a follower of Jesus. Yes, turns into something very different in tradition, elevated to an unsustainable estate that you can't square with the context or with scripture but she's a compelling example of faith and trust in god and we do well to put our trust in god in christ as mary did and to obtain a similar salvation we're again so glad that you've joined us today if you'd like to talk more about mary or consider other conversations about other uh, faith, uh, followers of jesus uh, men and women you'd like to uh, have a Bible study, have, uh, take a correspondence course, have a prayer request. Maybe you'd like to check us out at Venice Church of Christ. You can find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or on social media. If you'd like to contact me personally, you can reach me through my website at www.deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.